If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, we are in Philippians chapter 1 this evening in verse 27. Philippians 1 and verse 27. Pardon me. Our text tonight brings us now to the conclusion of this first chapter of Philippians. And this closing represents a critical passage in this epistle. Paul transitions back to addressing the Philippian church. And as he does, he does so much like a trial lawyer. He has intricately woven his points through this first chapter. Some incredibly important perspectives have been brought to light, and many of these, which one may have assumed he knew the outcome of, have been completely contrary to that expected result, which we have thought as we began to read the details of the account. And now that he has everyone off balance, not knowing what to expect from what he might begin in his discussion, he brings us to this final assessment. And this is done in brilliant fashion, as as if putting final and uncontestable facts regarding a case before a jury. And this is where our title comes from. Critical Closing Arguments is what I've titled our text for this evening. Critical Closing Arguments. Let's take a look at our text in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to back up just a little bit above verse 27 so we can set our context before we move ahead. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. So follow along in your Bibles if you would. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Critical closing arguments. Paul began this great epistle with a glorious prayer of praise and supplication. A prayer that was saturated with Christ and the gospel. 
Not only was this a wonderful illustration on what our prayer is to look like as we consider bringing our needs before the throne of grace, that we too ought have prayers that are gospel-saturated. It is right for us to be focusing on the loved ones and acquaintances and neighbors and others in our lives who we know do not recognize the grace of Christ and are not living for our Savior and to bring them before His throne of grace. And also to recognize that it is on behalf of Christ that we pray. When we consider the acronym ACTS and beginning our prayer with adoration, it is Christ whom we adore. It is His work. It is the cross. It is His faithfulness. It is that which brings us everything. And that is what Paul's prayer is saturated with on these two accounts. But it is also a prayer focused on the church at Philippi. We saw this as we began in verse 1 in his introduction and he addresses the church and not just the church but also the deacons and the overseers or the elders of that church making it an all-encompassing view for the church but specifically dialing down on the elders and on the deacons. And as he does so, then he expands dramatically in verses 3 to 10. And he begins to talk about all of the specifics of the yous in the church. The you alls, or as we would like to say, is the all y'alls. And the entire body of believers that he is addressing. Look at those in verses 3 to 10. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Offering author prayers with joy in my every prayer for you. Uh, for I'm confident of the very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. For it is only for, right for me to feel this way about you all. I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and my confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers. For I long for you all. And I pray that your love may abound so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So there is this constant cacophony of you. So we see that the focus of the beginning of this prayer is clearly the full body of the believers of the church. Paul's Christ-focused prayer is to the church and it's a glorious expression of his wonderful affection for this great church. And we've spoken about how this is without doubt the prominent and superior New Testament church. The church at Thessalonica was amazing. But even they received some rebuke from the great apostle. Philippi is the only church in the epistles which Paul writes that does not receive that rebuke. Then we see the letter transition at verse 12. Now in the second section, Paul switches subjects. This becomes apparent now because we have all the first person pronouns. We had all the second person pronouns you in the first part. And now we have all the first person pronouns. No longer is it you, but now it's I and me and my. Look in verses 12 to 14, some examples. Now I want. So he brings himself into this discussion at verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian God. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. So there is this, now this focus switches. Paul is now speaking about himself. We see this further expanded in verses 18 to 20 where he says, and I rejoice, yes I will rejoice, for I know that it will turn out for my deliverance. 
Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation that I will not be put to shame. So there's been a huge change that we can't miss from the introductory prayer to now Paul's reflection upon himself in the second section. He turns again from a focus on his ministry then into his life in all that is going on with him. And he, and he moves ahead then further and he begins to contrast this consideration of life and death in our section today. He realizes for that for the best progress of the gospel, it's going to be best that he remains on. But notice all of that introduction is all still first person. He's still assessing himself, and he is bringing the church in with his assessment of his suffering. And again, as we've seen, those are very contrary results. We expect that it's going to get very gloomy and very dark, and it does not. It continues to be positive. It continues to be a joy for what God is doing. And that it will even result in their great confidence in Christ, which would be evidence through Paul's continued ministry and in turn, perhaps even a visit to them. So we see this transition that went from all second person pronouns primarily to first in verses 12 to 20. And again, that first person pronoun continuing in the first verses. And now we're going to see another transition begin to happen. As verse 21 to 26, the subject is still the first person, I and me, of Paul, but the yous of the church begin to appear again. Now there is an, an interaction. He's spoken about his own ministry, and now he's switching to begin to talk about his ministry with them and the way that they dovetail one with another. We see all the eyes in verses 21 to 23 uh, for me, first person, for I am to live on. I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed. But later, the verse transitioned to more of a second person uh, program in verse 24. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And again, I know and I will remain that you all for your progress of joy so that your proud confidence. So now there's this dovetailing and this transition back to the yous. And now as our master presenter has brought his argument full circle from all about the church to all about him, now to a blend, he's going to move back to talk all about the church in this closing address and the final comments of concern that he has for the church. And in these critical closing arguments, we see some vital points that we'll find out are very applicable to each of us. So let's look at our first point as we consider our text, critical closing arguments. And I've titled our first point very simply, Be United. Be United. In verse 27, Paul begins his exhortation to the church with only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word conduct here in our text is a command. It could be translated as live or let your life be. One version says only let your manner of life be. Another has only let your conduct be. The point is that there's a command that is emphatic that is to be emblematic of our entire life. This is to be who we are. 
It is, it is a conduct, it is a manner, it is a way in which we live that is to saturate everything about us. And this overarching lifestyle is to be one that is worthy of the gospel. This is a life which is a continual beacon for truth and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the scripture tells us that we don't light a lamp to place it under a bed, but we place it on a hill so that it will bring light to the entire community. That is us. We are the lighthouse on the hill. We are to be a beacon to all around us of the truth of Christ. That is the manner of life which he is speaking about in this text. And this overarching lifestyle, he tells us, is to be one that is worthy of the gospel. It's a life which is a continual beacon for truth and the gospel of Christ. And that word worthily has the idea behind it of a set of scales. And that as you put something on the scale, you have to balance it out with something to make it equal. It is a worthy weight. The scripture talks about in Proverbs that the Lord hates unjust scales. Well, this is a worthy life, a life that weighs out, a life that comes into the balance. And the best description of this worthy life is the scripture itself, which repeatedly uses this term and defines it for us. Listen to a few of those verses, such as in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So our worthy walk is one that is ongoing throughout our lives. It is a walk, that's what that word means. But it is one which is worthy of our calling. That is the one who called us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died on our behalf and brought life to us. This is the weight This is the balance, the worthiness, which we are seeking to attain. Colossians 1.10 further goes on in a very familiar verse. Colossians 1.10, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So part of our worthy walk is to bear fruit. It is to use the gifts that God has given us within the local church to bring about the growth of the church internally that they would be edified and externally to go out into the world to share Christ. That is the bearing of fruit and also not just that bearing of fruit but also to increase in knowledge. To be growing in our understanding and this is an experiential knowledge of God. One other verse that speaks about this worthy aspect of our lives is 1 Thessalonians 2 and verses 11 to 12. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11, just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So our worthy walk is to include the actions of a father, whether it be in the act of exhorting, drawing to correct action and thinking and doctrine, whether it would be encouraging, taking those who are broken and lifting them up, or whether it would be imploring and begging and pleading that they would come to know Christ and that they would live in this manner. These are the actions of a worthy walk be that man or woman we are called to reflect that and of course Paul in that same section talks about the the beautiful tenderness of a loving mother as she nurses her child 
So this is what that worthy walk looks like. And there are a ton of scriptures that reference this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 talks more about it. Titus 2.10 talks about it. 2 Peter talks about it in chapter 3, a couple of places. But the bottom line is that there is a wisdom. It's, not, it's walking as wise men and not unwise. You know, when we think about how our life is marked, that, that he's calling us to this worthy walk, this conduct that is going to saturate all that we are and everything that people see in us, what would we think of when we think of how different people or even ourselves may be characterized by others? We may think of individuals as being characterized by their sewing. Some people are wonderful seamstresses, and that's how we might know them. We might know them as being wonderful bakers or cooks. We might know them as being golfers. We might know them by their work. These are normally the ways that we know one another, isn't it? But this is not what is to be the primary mechanism by which we are known or which we know others. Rather, it is not to be an occupation, but Paul says it is our conduct and manner of life which is worthy of the gospel. Our lives ought to be in a balance that is constantly seeking to bring a level to that of Christ regarding his gospel. The proclamation of Jesus Christ. The reflection of who he is to the world. That all would see in us something that is different from the rest of the world. Not because it's of us, but because it's of him in us. It is the gospel given to us that we are to breathe out into all the world. But he has a purpose in commanding this walk. And it is what he reveals in the rest of verse 27 there of chapter 1. Where he says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here's where our point comes from, be united. Being of one spirit, one mind, striving together. In short, be united. He begins by telling them that it is to occur whether he comes or doesn't come. He's just talked back in verse 36 that he hopes that he will be released, that it will work for their good, and that he will get to come and see them. But that's a tenuous situation. It may happen, but it may not. And he says, so whether I come or not, I want this to be the case. His hope is that regardless, he will hear. And that what he will hear is that they are obeying this command to live worthily of the gospel. And so much of of that hearing that their lives are a testimony that's going forth even beyond their borders wherever he might be. But this is to happen as a result of a unified effort of standing firm. Standing firm, that word means not yielding, means not bent by the winds that may come. Scripture speaks about the winds of doctrine that will blow the man who is weak in his faith this way and that. No, this not yielding, this standing firm is that which Paul wants to hear of. And notice how it happens. 
It's not like there is this stalwart man who has just lived his life as an island out there, hung to the truth of the gospel, lived it out in life, but he is surrounded by that. He is a man who is of one spirit, who is of one mind. It is a unity that's going on here that is causing this. That of being of one spirit. Now, we have to ask at this point, is the spirit little s or is the spirit big s? Is this by the spirit of God or is this by his spirit in his body which is guiding him? Well, we get an indication of what this is because immediately it isn't evident, but the next term tells us. You see, the next term says one mind, but it is literally translated as one soul. So it is one spirit and one soul. And these two are commonly paired, the Greek words pneuma and pasuke. Now we've often talked in here about how those words spirit and soul occur together. And there's an ongoing discussion amongst theologians about the the makeup of our human beings, whether we are uh, simply material and immaterial as a soul and spirit together, or whether we are a tripart element, body, soul, and spirit as separate components. And, and uh, I've preached on that back from Hebrews 4. You can go listen to it. 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks about it. There are distinctly those same two terms here. But his main point is that there is a unity of worthy gospel living that incurs in such a nuanced fashion that it involves both the spirit and the soul. So now we know from those two parallel descriptions that he is speaking about the immaterial part of man. And it is not just that individual immaterial part. You see, this is the very unity of of all that Scripture brings forward as the church is to operate. This is the core of the unity of biblical eldership wherein it is right and necessary for elders to function in unanimity. And when they do in a unanimous spirit, that it must be the Holy Spirit which is guiding them, for these are believers, both in the eldership and here in our example, in the church. Both these singularly unified, immaterial components must be defining functions of one's obedience to God. His spirit as each member is indwelt and empowered. That spirit being that that force in a believer, that, that animating force in the life of man. Everything that is in our being, this reminds us of our, our text in Mark 12, 4, 45, where you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. It is a unified component of all of our being, all of the life which God has given to us, that we are to have a worthy walk for the gospel. And it is also with all of our soul, with all of that which makes us life for God, which makes us different from the animal beings. Well, these immaterial parts come together and this unyielding unity is for all the faith of the gospel. Second time that the gospel is mentioned in this verse. One spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's incredible to understand the component that's coming together here. 
Because as, as amazing as these two kind of nuanced parts are that we've talked about, the dramatic element is the combination of these two in this verse. That is a manner of life worthy to the gospel and the unity of standing firm for the gospel. The worthy manner seems to be an individual effort. We would say it, would, it reflects our sanctification. That is our individual efforts to live a worthy life, one that balances out. But this verse tells us the way that we achieve a gospel-worthy life is by standing firm together in one spirit, in one mind or soul, striving together. So there is an individual sanctification that is accomplished by our corporate activity. Why are we strong? Not because we have lived our whole lives in obedience to God in the scriptures. We must do that. But because we have been in a church where that's what goes on all about us. And we are seeking as one body to achieve that end. It's incredible for us to understand all that happens. It's, it's telling us, beloved, that we need one another. Not just in a cursory way, but in a necessary way. Paul is connecting our corporate action with our spiritual growth. This is a necessity of a functioning church. We have been given gifts by the Spirit of God to do the work of the ministry. But by myself, I've only got a gift or maybe two or three at best. There are many gifts out there. I can't function as a body on my own. Because I'm one tiny little part. I need all of the rest of the parts. I need all of the rest of the gifts coming together to do this work. Using our gifts together, discipling one another, evangelizing together, and of course, loving and caring for one another. Specifically, we must be united. And as we understand that, our next point takes us to another component in verse 28 where we not only need to be united, we need to be second confident. Be confident in verse 28 where it says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a, a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Not only are we to stand firm as we are united, but we're not to be alarmed. Literally, in no way alarmed, or in no way intimidated, or not frightened, or not terrified. All of those excellent translations for this verb. The term is expressed negatively, but it is a positive idea. In no way are we to be alarmed. And we understand why that alarm can occur. The Philippian believers have an adversary. There's somebody that's against their growth. There's somebody that's against them achieving that balance, that weight, that worthy conduct and manner of life for the gospel. They have an enemy, as does every church. Every church from then on, as does our church, and will every church through all history. Well, what is the danger of being alarmed. What happens when we're fearful? Not just when we're a little scared, but what happens when we're terrified? What goes on in our lives? We freeze up, don't we? We don't move forward. 
We don't think about anything else other than our current fear or our terror. It consumes us. It captivates us. It makes us unable to move ahead. We stop functioning. But this will not be the case for the one who is unified. Because we have a lot more courage when we're not alone, don't we? You know, I remember I loved playing games in my neighborhood in Montana as a little kid. We had a great neighborhood for kids. There were about 30 of us in this one big block. And I was one of the little kids. And they always wanted to play games at night. You know, all those big kids, all those teenagers, they want to play night games. And I was like, well, yeah, okay. They want to play kick the can. I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Um, But I kind of would like to have somebody to go with me. Because when I get over behind Mr. Neal's house, it is stinking dark over there, and it scares me to death. And there's that other dog across the fence, and I'm sure it's going to come right through and eat me, right? But when I've got somebody with me, I am bulletproof. <laughs> dog, backyard of the Neal's, no big deal. We're ready to roll. Let's go get that can. Let's go set those kids free that got caught. You know, when we are together, we have strength, and that's exactly what he's telling us here. We're not alone. The confident perspective reveals two different elements, too. First, it's a sign of destruction. Literally, an indication of perdition would be a good literal translation of that phrase, sign of destruction. It is an indication of perdition. This is the condition of the opponents that have just been described. Because these believers are living worthily. That is, they are standing firm. They are striving together. And now thirdly, they are not being alarmed. And the result of this for their opponent is game over. Can kicked, you're done. Everybody's free. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. Don't worry about it. It's time to go and play some more. This is the confirmation of perdition. This is the assurance of hell for the opponents. They will not overcome they will not come against the church those who contend against the church that is stand that is standing firm in god's word that is striving together in unity and not afraid is unassailable this is exactly what the lord tells us in matthew 16 18 where jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overpower it That is the the first effect, the sign of destruction. The second assured reality of which they are to be confident is their salvation. For those who are standing firm in unity and striving together for their gospel, their conduct in that manner of worthiness for the gospel as revealed in verse 27 is clear. And this combined with the fact that they are not alarmed and have no fear of their opponent confirms their salvation sometimes when struggle or sin comes into our lives difficulty or affliction it can bring doubts about our salvation we can begin to wonder where we are with the lord why do those doubts come well it's because these things that we have just spoken about are not true in in that individual's lives They are not standing firm in unity because they've been isolated. The struggle 
oftentimes having nothing to do with sin, has brought fear. And that fear has brought a a paralysis. And they've been drawn away. And they're unable to interact. They're unable to share. They're unable to talk about all that is going on because that fear, that concern, that struggle has captivated them. And they're isolated in their bubble. And they can't get beyond that to see the glory and the blessing and the necessary unity of Christ. Or it's sin. And sin has pulled them away and they are not pursuing a worthily balance because they're pursuing their own desires and goals. And again, they are isolated and not functioning in unity. We cannot have those doubts. The necessity for our church is to be part of the body, to be so integral with what's going on that we know everyone's nuances, everyone's in and outs of our lives. And this is no surprise to us that these things occur, that there is a destruction of the opponents and that there is salvation for us because these are from God, as the end of the verse tells us. And everything is from God. He has done all of this for us because this is what the believer is to understand and because of this, he is to be confident to Be unified, to be confident, to be united and be confident. And third, to be ready. Our third point is be ready in verses 29 to 30. Verse 29 tells us what we're to be ready for, where it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We need to be ready, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Be ready ready these are not a curse they're not a bummer they're not something to be avoided why is that wouldn't we want to avoid those things no no we aren't because they are given for christ's sake as the text says for to you it has been granted that word granted it means to be given most simply but the root meaning of the word is given freely or given graciously. It can be used in a different context of those who have accumulated debt and that debt is forgiven. So there is a very positive and a blessed element. And in fact, our word for being blessed in the New Testament is of the same root. These are gifts. Not only gifts, but gifts for Christ's sake or those on behalf of Christ. Well, how can this be? How do we understand this gift that belief is? Well, we get that, right? I I get that belief is a gift. That's that's the faith that God has given me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God and not of yourselves, lest no one may boast. So we, our faith, our salvation, our belief, they're all from God. They're all a gift. I, I got that. I got that, Pastor. Clearly the most glorious gift. But it's also to suffer. That is to suffer for his sake. Or suffer on account of him. Now, how is suffering a gift? Listen to Colossians 1.24. A very important verse in our lives. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, that is Christ, 
In my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As we suffer in this life, we are filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Does this mean that Christ's suffering wasn't enough? That there was something it didn't do or that it lacked? Not at all. It's not speaking about Christ's passion or his sacrifice that was lacking. It is that we are brought into understanding. We are brought into brotherhood and harmony with the suffering of our Savior. We are made partakers of his suffering and we begin to understand what our Savior went through. As we suffer, as we go through trials... We understand that our Savior went through all of this many, many times over. And it begins to wash upon us what Jesus did. It begins to make that faith which we see as a gift so much more precious. Such a much greater gift that has been given to us. Because we understand through our suffering, through our difficulty, through our tragedy, what our Savior did to bring us faith. Not a minor endeavor, not a simple situation, but that he endured the sin of mankind to bring all of us faith that he would call to himself. What an amazing understanding. What a gift we have been given. And verse 30 goes on to further describe this suffering where it says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. How much suffering? Ooh, really? Conflict which you saw, Paul? Which we're to see in you? What did that look like? Well, in case we've lost track, we can go to texts like 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. Listen to just a little bit of Paul's suffering, which we can expect. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 11:23. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. 5 times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 40 lashes was the death sentence. 3 times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, I believe that event in Acts, actually he died and was brought back to life. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. Not only were these suffering which Paul had previously endured, but verse 30 also says those which he is currently experiencing. Those which 
they now hear to be in me at the end of verse 30. Namely, his imprisonment in Caesar's dungeon. A condition with all, which almost no one would come out of. All of these are the suffering for Christ's sake, which they have been granted or gifted. And the message is that they are to be ready. And beloved, this is the same message given to us. Be united. Have that worthy walk of individual sanctification that is growing in the body of Christ, in one spirit, in one mind, striving together one another, that we are built up and that we are unified as a body. And that not only that, we are confident, we are not alarmed because we understand that God has brought all of this, that God will take care of his enemies and he will bring his saved to himself. God is doing all of this because only through this, my beloved, only through being united and being confident can we ever be ready because suffering is coming and it's coming into each life. We have all experienced a modicum of that and we shouldn't be wondering about the cancers and the sicknesses around us as if it were some strange thing. It is not. Between the sin-cursed world in which we live and the promise of coming suffering, we should be asking, why isn't there more? And why not me? It isn't a matter of if, but when. You know, the the blessing of being a man in this world, uh, according to men's health and several prominent physicians, is that you live significantly beyond the the years uh, of the age of 80 years old. Your likelihood of prostate cancer is almost certain. Oh, well, then I'm just not going to live past 80 because I don't want to go through that. No. Suffering is coming. We don't run from it or think, well, I just don't want to get there. We don't run. We must be ready. Be ready. But in order to do that, we have to obey those first two commands. We have to be united. We have to be confident. And when we are, then we are ready for the trials. Because we know God has so prepared us. We know that we are walking in a worthily manner. We know that we are united and surrounded by the love of God as evidenced in the body of Christ. We know that we are confident, that we are not alarmed, that we are not fearful, that we are not terrified. For God is with us. Who can touch us? Who will snatch us out of his hand? None will. Paul has put together a masterful conclusion to this chapter, and it is a critical closing argument. And it's critical because it grows us in sanctification. It grows us in unity in this church. And it grows us in confidence so that when trials come, we are ready. I pray that God will use these verses and our encouragement one with another and His Word to prepare us and make us ready so that we can stand fast as these things come, that we can rejoice and that we can reflect the gospel and the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, every moment and every breath that he gives us. For therein, we will have that balanced, worthily walk. What a joy that we have that privilege.